Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to be sharing with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Katrina Smale. Katrina is an English teacher in training and she is somebody who has recovered from atypical anorexia nervosa. Now Katrina had quite a difficult experience with her eating disorder and was in three different hospitals for different kinds of treatment over the course of time and it wasn't until sort of really sort of later on in her treatment that she met a consultant who was really, really helpful. And this was a kind of turning point in her recovery as she felt that she was able to kind of get to the deeper issues of the eating disorder and really kind of make a sort of turning point in recovery. So really looking forward to speaking to Katrina and hearing more about her experiences. I know she really wants to inspire hope in others that they can seek treatment too. She wants to also highlight some of the problems with current NHS support, but also some of the positives about this too. And yeah, really just to kind of help others understand they're not alone and to share experiences and openness to inspire you in your own recovery journey. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Katrina, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. All right. So Katrina, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and sort of what's brought you here today? So really, I am somebody who has I guess struggled with eating disorders in the past and in various I've types I suppose because of various things and as a result of that I have then experienced treatment within the NHS and I guess it's mainly that treatment that I just want to I suppose discuss with you I suppose and should I guess to just make people aware of how eating disorders are treated and perhaps what doesn't doesn't work And yeah, I suppose it's then just offering a perspective from somebody who has experienced it, I guess, and then to just open up any help to anybody else who needs it. Sure. Okay. And it sounds great. And it sounds like, I guess, over the years, it sounds like you probably had quite a few different experiences that you'll be able to talk about today. So, Katrina, can we even just go back, like, you know, back to when you were a sort of little girl and your relationship with food, can you sort of identify maybe when the problem first began? Yeah, I suppose, again, because of the of treatment, it's it's been something that I've reflected on quite a lot. And as I, well, as a child, I was a very fussy eater. I was one of those that I was an absolute pain for my mum, I guess, up until about... 20 I suppose when the quote-unquote eating disorder really kicked in and so yeah my eating was always very up and down and when I did go through periods of anything that was a little bit traumatic I would just stop eating altogether and yeah so it was very frustrating I suppose for my mum and for my family me growing up because if we had to go out to a restaurant or anything like that my mum would have to pull somebody aside and just be like, can you just do a plain pasta and cheese? Because that's all she's going to eat. <laughs> so yeah, I was, it was a little bit of a pain, I suppose. But 
I suppose it's then something that has started from when I was very young and it just continued as I got older, I suppose, because that's just how I learned how to cope with things was to then control food, I guess, in that respect. So when you were a little girl, it was more that you were a fussy eater, was it? It wasn't that you were trying to sort of change your weight and shape at all? No, I mean, that has, I suppose that's the difference with the way that my eating disorder has presented itself in that it doesn't, it's nothing to do with that. I, when I have even been at my lowest, I was able to stand in front of a mirror and say, you know what, I look like a zombie. I look awful. And yeah, there was never, I've never had any of those thoughts of being overweight or wanting to change the way that I look to be underweight or anything like that. It is mainly just brought on by periods of stress and then depression that comes with that. And yeah, I guess through a lot of my treatment and reflecting back on where it all started, I then did start to realise that depression has been something as well that has been with me the majority of my life. And yeah, which was which was quite a sad revelation, I suppose, because I was trying to think back on it and I was just like, you know, what? I can't actually remember a time where I was actually happy in myself, I suppose, even if there was kind of happy things going on around me. I just always found it quite hard, I guess, to see any happiness in it. So yeah, and again, that is something that I have come to realise over the course of treatment and different therapies. So yeah, I suppose. And it just it just then is then if anything that's kind of happened as I've grown up, anything that's been traumatic or stressful, um, I just yeah have reverted back to just not eating very much as a way to cope, I guess. Mm, sure so yeah so it sounds like in a way yeah like your presentation in a way was more atypical although I think not any less serious just want to really make that point but it's almost like it wasn't really driven by the illness wasn't driven for you by weight and shape concerns but it was it was quite linked to your mental health and perhaps low mood yeah yeah definitely which is always something I suppose then going through treatment it was always something that at first i believed I guess and I was all with because at first I went into daycare and the nurses there were I suppose they were almost trying to put that problem onto me and they were constantly then questioning me about like how I felt about my weight and everything and then as soon as I started thinking about it and started saying well actually I don't I actually don't I'm not really bothered if I end up putting a bit of weight on or anything like that they almost called me a little bit of a liar And then that was the same during some of my inpatient treatments is that they, because obviously this, that was the way that it was presenting itself in the the loss of weight and things like that. It was very difficult to find somebody who was actually going to listen to the fact that actually it's something else. So for a long time, it took a while for me to actually get treatment for the underlying problem rather than just the presentation and the symptoms. Yeah, and throughout my admissions as well that I've actually, and I'm still in contact with a few of them now, but one of the girls who I got very close with in my second admission, she hers was quite similar. And again, it took a long time for her to actually get somebody to listen to what she was kind of saying. But now she's in Malta now, and she's actually set up her own mental health charity I suppose in Malta and she gets people out 
literally just walking and talking and talking about mental health. So, yeah, so that was mm. that's been quite positive. Sure. So it sounds like you, you like, yeah, you found someone like a sort of kindred spirit there who understood. Yeah. It sounds like maybe it was quite frustrating for you if people assumed you had weight and shape concerns when you didn't feel that was relevant for you. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. And I think then that ended up forming a lot of my opinions about my treatment, I guess, and the treatment process, particularly then in my second admission, because I think the first one, I suppose anybody who's had multiple admissions, you go into the first one thinking it's all going to be lovely and it's all going to be happy ever after at the end. But then obviously it wasn't. And then, yeah, during my second admission, that was when it was mainly quite frustrating. I suppose particularly because I had a consultant who was also a consultant in my first admission, but I didn't have her. I had the other one, the other consultant who she was, she was lovely. She was so nice. And but then this consultant had a bit of a reputation, I suppose. And then, yeah, as soon as I then got into my second admission and they told me who my consultant was, it was one of those moments where I went, oh, <laughs> because I just knew instantly that it, we just wouldn't get on, which wasn't, yeah, it wasn't very nice. But I think, yeah, it's just mainly that whole, I suppose because a lot of people, they do, it is a lot of girls that and men that go into eating disorder treatments that is their main problem and you know it is it is all about the weight it is all about how they look and you know arguably because of that it's no wonder that that is then the accepted reason mm-hmm. for everybody's or the way or that yeah I suppose that is the only way you can really say it, is that is the accepted reason as to why everybody who ends up going into treatment mm. has that eating disorder in the first place it's tricky yeah. isn't it because I think obviously it's one of the main sort of diagnostic sort of features or you know in when you're classifying anorexia yeah. nervosa for a large percentage of people it is very much driven by weight and shape concerns although probably not just by that I think it's often there's like often it's multifaceted almost but I think you know I think you're absolutely not alone I can kind of think of you know quite a lot of people I've worked with over the years where the weight shape issue hasn't really been central and I think sadly sometimes that can almost develop as a secondary thing once you've come into eating disorder services because you suddenly become much more aware of weight and shape yeah but could you say a bit more Katrina about what like you talked about kind of not eating when something stressful or traumatic came up or something so how do you think not eating was helping you cope I think it goes back to that whole of like needing control when things feel out of control I guess and even as a child well I suppose as a child you're not really in control of very much your parents do everything for you they cart you around everywhere they send you off to school and choosing whether or not to put something in your mouth is one of the only things that you do still have control over so I suppose subconsciously, it was, yeah, my brain's kind of saying to me, like, look, this is something you can control. Things are feeling a bit, you know, chaotic at the minute. Yeah, and then I suppose whenever anything like that was going on, I would work myself up to feel quite anxious. Mm. And then because of that anxiety, obviously, then it can go either way. Either people decide or people get hungry or people lose their appetite. And because of that anxiety that I ended up building up, around anything stressful 
I would just lose my appetite and I would actually feel quite sick. And then it developed this fear of sickness and this fear of being sick. So then I just wouldn't eat because I was like, well, if I don't eat, I can't be sick. So yeah, I think it was, it just goes back to that whole needing control. And I, as I was growing up, I was always somebody who didn't really say very much. I was very quiet. And I suppose, so I suppose as well, it kind of then was me saying, actually, I need a little bit of help here. And that was my only way that I could think of to communicate it because I didn't know how to communicate it any other way. So I think it was it was very multi, I suppose, as you say, multifaceted. And there's a lot of levels to it of how it ended up developing. And yeah, then I suppose tipping over the edge as I got older. Mm, sure. Well, it's so helpful, actually, just like explaining that. So I'm sure like there'll be people listening as well that might really just relate to some of the things you're talking about. Because I think... Yeah. We often forget sometimes in a way an eating disorder and yes it is about food but actually it's not really about food as well it's about yeah. some of these deeper yeah. issues isn't it and like like you yeah. say like you know if you're feeling out of control and you're perhaps feeling like like life is a bit stressful and chaotic you know having control around food is often one of the things that we can control isn't it so it can be yeah. something to kind of cling on to really and also as well signaling to others maybe that you're not okay if you can't say that through words you know yeah. it's quite it's a way of communicating isn't it do you think as well with sort of eating to sort of not eating as well what impact did that have on your kind of anxiety and stress like did you feel some relief like kind of numbing of your emotions when you were not eating yeah i found that cuz i would when i was younger it would it wouldn't really last that long only really a couple of days but I would find that on the maybe like second day I guess that would then be yeah when I would start to feel a bit numb and I suppose as well because I wasn't eating it was giving me a lot of time to literally just kind of sit in my room and yeah it was then through doing that and I suppose isolating myself that in a sense, it did give it did give me that sense of relief where I was like, okay, I can just be in my own space and nobody's going to interrupt me. I don't have to do anything. I can just sit here and feel sad and feel stressed and then move on afterwards. I suppose that's what was kind of going on in my mind was that I just wanted some place to be by myself and have no kind of interruptions. And yeah, to just numb what I was feeling. And that became ever more present the older that I got as well mm-hmm. and still kind of reverted back to that way of coping that the numbing I found that it came quicker each t- like I spent yeah each time and so yeah that then becomes quite addictive I think because things going wrong in my life I can just revert back to this and I can just numb myself from it and just completely shut off from it and I don't have to talk about it I can just be here by myself and just feel numb for a little while and yeah that that does become quite addictive I think but then also I guess an extension to that because you're not talking about how you feel about things and you're not opening up about your feelings that was when the depression started to really sink in a bit I think with me because I wasn't allowing myself to actually talk about anything or about how I was feeling about anything which was a massive cause of frustration for my mum in particular because she was watching me do this but she couldn't do anything about it 
Mm. And she was giving me, at one point, she was making sure that I was having some like build up shakes a couple of times a day, just so that I wasn't getting into any kind of trouble medically. But again, because I was young, she was bringing those to me. As I got older, I could choose not to have them and just be like, actually, no, I don't, I don't want it. So yeah, but I mean, like with, with, I have, me and my mum have had family therapy and all of this has kind of been discussed quite openly with her. Mm-hmm. And that I would kind of say to anybody, I suppose, who is struggling with it, if you are offered family therapy, I would say to just to do it and to have that safe space where you can talk about what it is that's going on because having that level of understanding between both you and your parents it has built mine and my mom's relationship to be a lot stronger than what it was and now I'm quite open with her about things and she's very open with me about things so yeah Mm. yeah, I guess it's, it's had a positive in that respect. Sure and so and do you so do you feel there was a big shift after having some family therapy, do you, in, in terms of just you being able to talk to your mum and your mum and your dad being able to respond helpfully to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my mum and dad are actually separated and I did want to have family therapy with my dad, but we could never sort it out where he was free. So mm-hmm. that is still something that I haven't really been able to talk to him about. So that is still kind of, yeah, pending. <laughs> but with regards to my mum, it Definitely, because our relationship was very volatile as I was growing up. I think mainly because of the reason that I didn't talk about anything. I didn't, I just didn't talk. And that was just really frustrating for her. And I guess I as well, I wanted her to be my best friend. And I always said that I was jealous of girls whose mums were their best friend because I felt like my mum was against me and she was my enemy because of how volatile our relationship was. And then I was like, I was quite a daddy's girl and, you know, wanted to be with my dad a lot because of the fact that I suppose I just felt a bit safer with him because we didn't have that clash. We didn't clash like that. But then arguably that's because he wasn't there all the time. We only saw him every other weekend. Then there are things that have happened with, I guess, like my dad as a whole that has affected me as well. So it would be nice to be able to speak to him about it. But I think like talking, being able to talk to my mum and opening up to my mum about what was going on, it has built my confidence to be able to just approach my dad when the time is right to do so and to yeah. just do that myself and conduct it all myself without there having to be that safe space. Sure. So, yeah. It was, sounds like a, that was really helpful and like, you know, because it sounds like in a way you and your mum were probably really, really, very, very close, but um, you just, the communication had broken down, but it sounds like you kind of found your way back to one another, haven't you? And you're closer yeah. than ever now. So Katrina, can you talk a bit more about, like, I understand like on your final admission, you had a very good relationship with your consultant, is that right? And that was a bit of a shift for you. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, as I said, the first admission was, it was kind of, I'd built it up to be this amazing thing and it was all sunshine and rainbows. My consultant then was lovely and she was more than open to help me and just kind of facilitate me getting along. Second, I, to be honest, it I suppose between me and my friend who's in Malta, it was, a, we played it a little bit and I almost saw it a little bit like a game because of how the because of the consultant's attitude I suppose towards the both of us yeah it was almost just like okay we'll we'll do what you want us to do but you know we are gonna fight you every way almost and then it just became us really trying to get out 
I suppose, and not be in that environment. But yeah, the last admission was something that I pursued myself rather than there being any intervention from the doctors or anything like that. So that is another thing for me. I've never been sectioned. It's always been something that, you know, I've gone involuntary. So it wasn't as if like the last admission was forced on me or anything like that. I was in uni at the time and living away from home. So I was still under the services, so still within the eating disorder services, and they partnered and were in constant contact with a consultant. And I actually asked if I could see her because it was getting to that point that I knew myself that I was getting into a bit of a danger zone in terms of my weight and I was desperate for it not to go the way that it had in previous kind of admissions I guess and I was actually above the because obviously they base everything off of your BMI and your weight and everything like that I was above the quote-unquote criteria for that Mm -hmm. at the time But after speaking to her and just telling her everything, she was the first one to turn around to me and say, you know what, I actually believe exactly everything that you have said. I believe you. I don't believe this is, I suppose, a typical kind of anorexic. She was like, you're not, you know, I believe the fact that you don't care so much about your weight and how you look. So then she did re-diagnose me with atypical anorexia because she was like, although it is brought on by depression, because of your symptoms, we still have to diagnose you with anorexia. But she was like, okay, well, because obviously I know I can see in you that you just you just want this to end and you want it to go. She, we basically together we planned my admission and she got me in there within the next well the week after. And yeah, that was it was just such a relief, I suppose, to have somebody just turn around to me and just say, after all those years of fighting against what they were saying everyone else was saying and really trying to fight my corner and like almost exhausting myself it was so nice for her to just turn around and say you know I actually believe you and the whole way through that admission she worked with me and she'd do it with all of her patients anyway but we had little kind of catch-ups with her once a week and in that she would just ask me okay is there anything else that we can do are there any other groups that you want to go to any like main hospital groups for stress or anything And she got me into kind of as many groups as as she could in order for me to just, I suppose, learn other coping mechanisms and to really delve into what exactly it was that was going on. In addition to that, she did actually also let me travel back to the services that I was under to continue with my cat therapy, which had just started as I'd been admitted. And for those of you who don't know, it's cognitive analytical therapy. And what that does is it looks, it is different to CBT in that it doesn't focus really so much around how you feel. It focuses more about looking back and trying to pinpoint what's happened and then how you felt throughout those periods of your life so that you can actually open up and actually be able to talk about it rather than just being like, okay, well, how do you feel today? How have you felt this week? It looks right back and as part of that, it's very interactive in that you draw maps and you write letters to your therapist. They write letters back and you can like with your therapist, then you're plotting how and trying to get a visual kind of image of how your mind is processing different things and how your head is working through any stresses or any points in your life where it may be a little bit tense or where something may be going on. 
and I found that really helpful to be able to go back through everything so yeah although she with everybody else she was just like nope you have to be some people were on bed rest some people were they were almost they weren't allowed out with me she was like this is going to be obviously your one outing for the week but you can go you can spend all day there and that was really nice for her to still allow me to do that so yeah it was a very it was a very positive mm. mission I suppose and the way that they had had it set up as well was that there are three levels so you'd go in obviously firstly on the acute level which would be like a standard eating disorder unit where they would control your meals you'd fill out a menu every day based on what was being served in the restaurant I suppose and you'd be on observation so you'd be on level four observations but then kind of as you went through that process the more that they could I suppose see that they could trust that you weren't gonna throw food on the floor or hide it up your sleeve and things like that they would put you then into the adjoining ward so they'd partitioned the ward into two and they'd then put you on the other side of this partition, which was then progression stage. Mm-hmm. And then that would then be where they'd start to give you back some of that control. And instead of somebody sitting there with you, filling out your menus, you could fill it out yourself, but then obviously still eat with staff. And then you would go on to transition as you were coming towards the end of your admission, which would be that you'd be in full control. They'd give you a blank menu and you would pick everything that you want for that day which would then be sent down to the restaurant and yeah then you were in charge of preparing your own snacks and making sure that you were having them on time they didn't come and chase you if you didn't because the whole idea is that you are taking back that ownership and you are being then in control of your recovery and that was something that was I found to be not only very unique but so helpful in that it just it just starts to then renormalize eating I suppose and it starts to renormalize your life a little bit and you start to see eating as just another thing in your day rather than it being the main focus of all day every day constantly thinking about it yeah it was just just such a positive experience really as opposed to the other two which were just very restrictive I'm very reluctant to give you back that control, but then expecting you to leave and be able to take all of it all of a sudden, (laughs) which I think, to be completely honest, is a pitfall in a lot of ways that eating disorders are treated in that, you know, it's, it's it's such a bubble in the wards and you get so used to other people bringing you food and sitting with people and not being in control of what it is you're eating, which for some people can be quite a relief, but then they never really prepare you for the day that you're going to leave. Whereas having those different stages, it builds you up to that. And, you know, obviously then with their support still, even during transition, if there is anything that comes up, the dietitian was very approachable and very knowledgeable and she especially was just like look if anything comes up if there's any problems if you start feeling anything that you you know you're worried about just you know you can still talk to people so yeah I mean it was just it was just such a positive experience and on reflection of that it was a little bit like well why isn't everywhere doing it like this just because it would just help so many people I think Mm. yeah 
Yeah, well, it, sounds re- it sounds really positive, doesn't it, to have a more stepped approach. You know, I think really definitely if you've got the resources and the ward has mm-hmm. the sort of capability to do that, I can really see how it's very positive, isn't it, to feel that you've had perhaps quite a lot of practice at being autonomous and making yeah. those independent decisions before you are then back home. So Katrina, can you talk a little bit more as well about the cat therapy? Like, I don't know how much you'll be willing to share, but I'm just sort of wondering, like, did you sort of notice, you know, different perhaps patterns that you'd become caught in maybe in terms of like relating to others or how, you know, you dealt with your feelings or was there anything that kind of stands out for you when you sort of think back about the cat therapy and what you really learned? Yeah, a lot of it was to do with relationships that I form with people. I suppose I have always had a little bit of an addictive personality and I can form quite close attachments to people in my head, whereas sometimes the reality of that is completely different. So then transitioning from having a good relationship with somebody to then not having that relationship, I I suppose when we looked back at it, it, I found that that was particularly difficult and I suppose as a result I've always found it quite hard to make friends I've always had a very small group of friends and even now which I'm quite content with now but even now I've only really got my mum and then one of my close friends from school who I'm still in regular contact with as well as my friend in Malta and yeah I mean like before I would have been I suppose a little bit self-conscious of that and feel quite alone that I didn't have anyone but now now that I've been through the therapy and actually realized it's not the end of the world if you have a few people around you then that's fine at least you can count on those people that has been yeah that's been quite helpful but yeah a lot of I suppose my stresses have happened around relationships and the, the relationships that I've had with people so throughout my life obviously growing up my mum and dad separated when I was quite young, so I was only about two. And I remember it's it always shocks my mum when I give her details of things that I'd seen, how vividly I remember little things from that. And yeah, and then throughout school I was bullied quite a lot. I suppose because I was on my own quite well the majority of the time. And I was always a little bit different to everybody else. I've always but that is always something that I, despite being bullied and things like that, I've always stuck true to who I actually am. So I'm always been quite proud of that. But yeah, I was bullied all the way through school. Again, as I as the older that I got, the more I was able to just shrug it off and just be like, well, okay, well, I, this is boring me now. But when I was younger, I would, well, again, I'd build up that anxiety and I would actually, it would get that bad that I would, I suppose, make myself sick in the mornings just so that I'd have an excuse not to go to school. Because then I could be just, I can just start going and show my mum and be like, oh, look, I'm really ill. Um, I can't go in today because I was dreading going in. And then, yeah, that was obviously a point of frustration for my mum because I wasn't actually telling her that I was being bullied. And yeah, and then during that as well, my I was very close to my mum's, one of my mum's brothers, and he passed away. And yeah, that was something that I found really difficult. And then moving on from that, nothing really happened until I was about 18 I guess and I'd had a long-term relationship we were together since I was well since we were both 15 and it lasted until we were about 21 but it was a very volatile relationship obviously at at first it was it was fine but then it just started to turn really toxic and it was actually after that 
that the eating disorder, I suppose, represented itself. And I always describe it that, you know, the mask that I'd been able to put on and this kind of fake happiness that I'd always been able to put on had just been completely broken and I'm just going to be completely beaten down and I didn't have the energy to cover it up anymore mm. and to cover up how I was feeling. So, yeah, it's all it's all been very focused around relationships, I guess. And that was, some, that was a theme that did keep coming up a lot through cat therapy and it was always something that I'd kind of been aware of, but in a way it was quite nice to have that validated by somebody and to say actually no you weren't you know this is something that perhaps you do struggle with and that you do find quite stressful at times and yeah mainly because as well like my coping strategies as I said was to isolate myself and part of that was by not eating because yeah I suppose then it would be it would be just me and it would be down to me and that I suppose yeah no well thank you I think it's so helpful Katrina that you can just share that really openly because I think there's so much misunderstanding and so many sort of myths around eating disorders but I think you know your experience isn't you know sadly that unusual I think you know for many people with eating disorders when we sort of sit down in therapy and start exploring things that they've gone through there have often been relationship issues or things like bullying or stress like a bereavement or it's often really nothing really to do with food. It's down to kind of different things that have happened and, you know, and and maybe the support that was or wasn't available at the time. Yes, I think it's it's really helpful that you you can just share that really openly because I'm sure many people listening will really, really relate to a lot of this. So Katrina, how are you sort of doing today with your relationship with food and yourself? And, you know, how is life for you today? It is a lot better than it was. I am very aware that I'm still, I suppose, it's not perfect. But, you know, I think having that awareness about it is is just so much more valuable than not having the awareness of that. And I am actually now able to catch myself if I do start to feel like, okay, well, no, I am isolating myself and I shouldn't be. So, yeah, in that respect, it has been quite, valuable I suppose the only downside to being in multiple hospitals I guess is that in that last admission I did actually make I did get very close to one girl and her name was Hayley she was again it was it was one of those that they were just trying to treat her symptoms rather than the underlying cause and that kind of it wasn't really working because no matter how hard they tried to I suppose they they did help her, but it just didn't, it didn't, it wasn't enough because they weren't treating or trying to help her with the underlying causes. And she actually passed away, not last Christmas, the Christmas before. And I found that very difficult. And I do think about her a lot still. And yeah, it's still something that I do still have to catch myself with because if I think about it a bit too much, I do start getting back into that retreating kind of, feelings Mm. but again I think yeah going through all the treatment and everything I'm a lot more aware of when that is starting to happen now and I can catch myself with it as far as like food is concerned I don't have any problems with it at all in the fact that I eat cake and chocolate every day it's always been something that is chocolate has always been a bit of my vice. <laughs> mm. So I do make a point of eating it every day because I'm like, you know what, why not? You know, life is, it is too short. And 
especially in the eating disorder world, is something that it can kill people. And it does. And you don't have to be necessarily underweight for that to happen either. So I think because of all of that, I just kind of, I just now think, well, life is too short. I don't really want to look back and think, oh God, I wish I hadn't had had that cake in, at that time at Christmas that my sister had made. And, you know, mm. I don't want to think back and think things like that. I would rather mm. think back and think, actually, I had a really good time. I didn't miss out on this event in my life because of the way that I was feeling about myself. I'd rather look back on my life and think I've actually done things that I wanted to do. I've had those experiences that I wanted to have. And, you know, food is going to be a part of that. Everybody has to eat or you end up in eating disorder units, really, or not, as the case may be. Some people do fall through the gap, which is which is awful to think about. And I think especially now with lockdown as well, there have been a few reports, obviously, that it's becoming more prevalent in younger girls and I guess you know I would just like to highlight to a lot of younger girls who may be struggling with it that if you need help then ask for help just don't let yourself kind of fall through the gaps because you know there may be underlying problems that you can start to work through and ultimately it's not just a case of, okay, well, I'm not going to eat. Okay, I'm just going to lose weight. It's not, it's not just that. You are actually damaging your body. I mean, for example, I am 27 and I've got the bones of an old lady because of what I did to myself in my eating growing up and down. I've got osteoporosis mm. and I shouldn't have that at my age. And I think that's the main message, I guess, that I want to get out to anybody who is struggling with it is that it's not just losing the weight. It's you're damaging so much more in your body than you actually realise. And yeah, and I suppose also to highlight that there are many different reasons as to why somebody develops an eating disorder. And, you know, if perhaps people aren't able to access services at the minute because of what's going on, that maybe they can do some self-reflection, which is what I did a lot of, and even just draw yourself a few mind maps or something just trying to pinpoint where it started that can really help mm. yeah because I mean like it's doing all of that and doing all of that work it has taken a while but it's made me a lot more of a confident person it's made me a lot stronger than what I was and you know in that respect yeah it's still something that I'm still I still have to catch myself on at times but through doing all the work I um, well I like to consider myself quite casual now around food rather than obsessing about it all the time which is quite nice so yeah, yeah there is light at the end of the tunnel I suppose is the main message <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, that's really great to hear isn't it and you're now training as well as a teacher aren't you is that right you're training as an English yeah. teacher Sorry. yeah yeah yep. sure so no it's really positive to hear well, Katrina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just for sharing really openly, because I think it's really, really will give people such an insight into sort of like some of the deeper causes of eating disorders and also just to really validate people's experience that it doesn't always have to be really driven by weight and shape. And it also really does give people, I think, you know, just hope and inspiration about recovery. And, you know, I guess 
it sounds like some of your treatment wasn't, you know, the most helpful for you. But then it sounds like when you did get that good treatment, like the cat therapy and the consultant that really understood you, it was quite life changing and did really help turn things around for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's okay. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Katrina's info in the show notes. So if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And if you're looking for more support in your relationship with food and improving body image, do go and check out my website, which is theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. And there's information there about my online courses, breakthrough days, and also training for counsellors in eating disorders and body image. So yeah, do go and check out the link. That's theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. So thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.